Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Tyson Barker. Tyson is a program director and fellow at the Aspen Institute Germany. He also worked in the Obama administration and the State Department, and we discussed the impeachment of the 45th President of the United States. And as this podcast is ready to be published, let me add that the two articles of impeachment that Tyson and I discussed during this conversation were voted in the House of Representatives, they were accepted, and now they move to the Senate for the trial of President Donald J. Trump. I'm here with Tyson Barker. Tyson, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, I've been looking to have you on the podcast for some time now. And on an introduction note, I should say that I met Tyson personally in Lisbon during an event where we discussed protecting democracy in a digital era. And I should say, sir, that you did a tremendous talk. And I've been trying to have you on the podcast to discuss that because that is your main focus. So let's start with that. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get interested in politics? You're an American, you're living in Europe. So tell us a little bit the path you took to get to this point. Sure. Um, well, I've always been pretty politically engaged. Uh, I'm, as you mentioned, from the United States. I'm uh, from Texas initially. And uh, when I went to college, I was very active in politics uh, and volunteered on the Al Gore campaign in 2000 and 1999. And after the uh, somewhat contested and controversial election that year, I thought, you know what, I need to get to know the world a little bit. Um, and ended up going to Germany as a foreign exchange student after that, and subsequently spent time living in uh, Guatemala and Italy, doing some grad school work, and in uh, Austria on a Fulbright, and essentially kind of fell in love with knowing the world and U.S. engagement with the world. And that led me to a career in foreign policy. And so I spent seven years at the Bertelsmann Foundation, which is a large German think tank in Washington, D.C., and afterwards went into the Obama administration as a political appointee at the State Department working on Europe and Eurasia. And after that time, I came to Berlin, came back to renew my vows to, to some extent, um, and have ended up at the Aspen Institute Germany, where I'm a director and fellow and lead our programs dealing with tech policy and transatlantic relations. Tell us a little bit how it was it to work on the Obama administration. Sure. So I actually ended up working, volunteering, and helping to co-found an organization called Foreign Policy Professionals for Obama in 2008 with a group of uh, young, aspiring foreign policy professionals just graduating from Johns Hopkins University. Um, we had been traveling to different states working on the primary campaign uh, in the uh, race between Obama, Hillary Clinton, uh, John Edwards, Joe Biden, and others. And we spent time in places like South Carolina and Pennsylvania and Iowa and all these places, uh, Delaware. And afterwards, we said, you know, we have to give voice to Obama, the candidate, Senator Obama's foreign policy. And I think we we're all a little inspired because we were, let's say, older millennials, uh, people born in the 80s, 
um, by okay. his opposition to the Iraq War as a Senate candidate in what was then a swim, swing state in okay. 2003 and 2004, at a time when opposing the Iraq War was considered politically imprudent. And we see that, of course, in many of the Democratic candidates at that time, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, etc., who were much more uh, equivocal in their position on whether or not the United States should engage in a military operation uh, against Saddam Hussein. So we became active, and that kind of it led subsequently to me working at the State Department under John Kerry in the second Obama administration. And I have to say, you know, when you think back to that time, there was a lot of political drama, which we in the United States and the world recognize, recognize then and continues to recognize. But the administration was not a kind of, let's say, nucleus of drama. Um, it was really kind of refreshing how scandal-free those eight years were. And, you know, when you com compare it to today, where every week is another layer of, of scandal and another stress test for the Constitution, um, it was kind of a period of relative calm. I mean, there were a lot of issues around health care. There were issues around the stimulus package. There were questions around, uh, you know, also foreign policy, the NSA, Ukraine. And I ended up doing a lot of work on the Ukraine-Russia crisis in its early phases. But, um, you know, there was a lot more, I would say, there were you have the rumblings of early political polarization that we now the world sees you know on its face but it was still a more routine practiced uh standard operating procedure led uh administration so it was a different it was a different environment to today <laughs> mm -hmm. well i i think one of the slogans that any Democrat candidate can have for this election is in 2020. It's let's get back to normal. Mm. And, uh, and you just mentioned that. I, I can't just avoid making one last question and then a, a very quick one. Would you see yourself going back to that kind of life? Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I can imagine. And, you know, the situation has to, the stars have to align properly. But it is a real honor uh, for anybody in any country to serve their government and their country. I mean, and it's a real honor to be asked. So my ability to serve in a civilian capacity and others to serve in the military capacity, be it in, for me, in the United States government or for many Europeans that I know, that's a real, it's a real calling. And to do that kind of public service, I mean, there is a misperception that that kind of work is, you know, lacks entrepreneurship or that it's really uh, for people who like to say no. But when you get into some of those higher levels, and even, even in all aspects of government, there are people who are working hard to you know, serve the citizens, serve the people, and working really, really, really long hours to do so. Um, but I can see myself going back depending on if the situation was right. All right, let's keep waiting for that right situation to appear. Uh, for now, getting back to our conversation as we record this, uh, Speaker Pelosi introduced two articles of impeachment in the House of Representatives, one, abuse of power by the President of the United States, the other one, obstruction of Congress. But tell me, in your opinion, 
How do you see this process going on and what does it mean to you, especially an American and living in Europe? Well, I mean, it's hard to um, mischaracterize the gravity of the situation. So in Europe and in the United States, in the media and at, at many a bar and many a you know, university, people are used to talking about Trump as a norms breaker and Trump as a disruptor and a force for good or for ill that is really straining institutions. But in the United States, which has the longest continuously uh, in action in uh, constitution, democratic constitution still in force, written constitution still in force, uh, the impeachment procedure is a qualitatively unique uh, process. And although we're recording this on December 10th and probably some of the outcomes will be, you know, will be known within the next five to seven days, the, the label, a president who was impeached, you know, there have only been two presidents who have been impeached, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. Andrew Johnson during the early Reconstruction period, and Bill Clinton obviously in the 90s, and then there was an impeachment process that was starting to gain a lot of momentum uh, against Richard Nixon, which ultimately led to his resignation. So joining the class of impeached presidents is going to be something that's mentioned in the first line of any presidency, and that's a real, even justified or not, it's quite a stain on a president's legacy. Tell us, uh, tell to our listeners that have been following this very uh, peripherally, what is the importance, particularly in the relationship between Europe and America, being the cause of all this, the fact that the United States holds military aid to Ukraine? Yeah. So I, what you're, I mean, you're referring to indirectly is the first article of impeachment, which is related to abuse of power. And the, uh, the charge, essentially, and we should mention that impeachment is essentially a political indictment because the entire impeachment and removal process is a political process. It's not a legal process. It's written in the Constitution around high crimes and misdemeanors. And the term bribery is mentioned. And what the Democrats in the House have been trying to do is frame um, the transaction that Trump himself was trying to pursue uh, in terms of essentially an attempted bribery, uh, withholding the $400 million uh, of military aid that was approved and uh, appropriated by Congress uh, in exchange for several conditions that were seemed to be tied to his personal political uh, fortunes. Uh, the first being the president, you know, saying, well, it was withholding military aid and also withholding a White House visit. And the withholding of the White House visit has been explicitly mentioned um, by Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the EU, in his testimony before the Select Committee on Intelligence. But the aid is, is proportionally much bigger and m probably more important because we're talking literally about withholding money. Um, I have to say there are a couple of different aspects here. One is the the kind of legal and political aspect, which, you know, obviously 
The Democrats in the House say this is not a political issue. Nancy Pelosi made that quite clear. She said that this is a violation of, you know, a black and white uh, exercise of duty of a presidency, which is, you know, they swear an oath to the Constitution to uphold the law and their abuses that can be carried out by a president. And this is an abuse carried out by the president. But there is also political consequence. And I think that that's what you're referring to when you talk about Europe. So, you know, I worked on Ukraine policy, um, both on the kind of civilian assistance side, looking at corruption, rule of law, um, law enforcement, uh, institution building, judiciary reform, all that kind of stuff. And on the military side. And the United States, just like the European Union and its constituent member states, has a real vested interest in seeing Ukraine succeed. And the best way to communicate that is to say that, you know, the reforms that the United States, the European Union, the IMF, uh, the West, the global community want to see happen in Ukraine to make it a prosperous and peace, peaceful uh, country, large country in Europe, you know, are the reasons why aid will be given or there will be the conditions that are set on, 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 on aid. So it could be related to things like reforming the energy sector or making sure the prosecutor general is a clean and non-corrupt prosecutor general, these kind of things. And the United States has tried to build a reputation in Ukraine and in other countries from the end of the Second World War to today to say that we're an honest broker, that our attempts to create, you know, liberal democracies that are integrated into the world community are only predicated on upholding certain values like rule of law, like, you know, transparency, accountability, etc. So when the president makes the condition based on his personal political fortunes, i.e. basically using channels, informal channels, like Rudy Giuliani, his personal lawyer, to communicate that an investigation of Burisma and Hunter Biden, as well as an investigation of, or the announcement of an investigation of CrowdStrike, are the conditions required to release military aid, that puts the United States on the same level as uh, essentially a racketeering operation. Uh, and that kind of body blow to the credibility of the United States is extremely damaging and disheartening, not only for Ukraine, which has been promised this aid, which is appropriated by Congress. Not This is not Trump's pocket money. This is the American people's pocket money uh, appropriated by Congress, but also to all these diplomats, all these aid workers, all these the people in the U.S. military and NATO who have been working with Ukraine to pull Ukraine into into the West and, and actually empower Ukraine to lift itself up and, and allow it to direct itself. And the message that the, the Ukrainian people have is, is pretty clear, which is it, it can breed a lot of cynicism. They say, well, you're just like the Russians. You know, this is, this is a mafia shakedown. And so for them, it, you know, it, it, it breeds suspicion. It breeds questions about motives from the United States. For the diplomats that are exercising this this uh, this aid, you know, to Ukraine, it makes them uh, question the motives that are that are driving their actions. 
And it just creates a cloud of suspicion all around, which is extremely damaging to a reputation that the United States has built up over 70 years. It goes even more than that because we also knew, we also found out that Rick, per Rick Perry, as the responsible for the Department, Department of Energy, was also making uh, deals on the background, uh, abusing his position on Ukraine. Now let me uh, piggyback on what you mentioned and going back to the beginning of our conversation, and that is, in my opinion, one of the positive aspects of this ordeal have been seeing exactly those diplomats, people that are in charge of intelligence and security, showing their best, exactly like you were saying, people that work for a cause with dedication. How can these people keep their morale, keep doing their work, keep believing their mission when they, for example, are constantly being attacked by the President of the United States or members of Congress. What is your take on that? Yeah. Well, um, you know, it is obviously demoralizing and quite intimidating to come under the kind of death star, death ray of the President's Twitter account. And for diplomats who have been working at the State Department or, you know, in other forms in functions in government, for on and off or continuously for the past 30 years, who have built their career on integrity and professionalism. And then to have the commander-in-chief basically flippantly dismiss it or, or try to radicalize uh, parts of the population against these individuals is really tough. And we should say that you know a lot of these people who have come forward very courageously to testify against the wishes of the White House. So this is getting back to the second charge, uh, uh, the second charge in the Articles of Impeachment, which is obstruction. You know, the White House told them that they should not testify. And this is the, the, the top of the top boss, the president. This is coming directly for the White House. So when the White House is telling an ambassador uh, like Marie Ivanovich or an acting ambassador like Bill Taylor or any of these people who are essentially working for this man, mm -hmm. uh, that they ordering them not to testify, and they do it anyway. For, that is that demonstrates enormous courage, enormous integrity, respect for their oath to the Constitution, which is where their oath lies, not with the president. Mm -hmm. um, and it's and and they actually incur massive costs. Um, and you know these people are not paid enormous amounts. So they're, they're having massive legal costs that are not being borne by anybody but themselves. Um, we have known, this is not a secret, the State Department is completely demoralized. Uh, the, the upper brass of the military officer corps is becoming increasingly demoralized. Be it uh, the decision of President Trump to pardon uh, you know, officers or troops that have committed certain crimes that have been adjudicated in military tribunals, mm -hmm. or his snap decision to withdraw troops from northern Syria. Um, across the board, there is a sense that, you know, everybody is in a state of emergency, and they're just trying to white-knuckle through what is essentially kind of hurricane. So that's the bad side, and we know this, and it's eroding you know, some of the best and brightest from all sorts of governmental institutions in the United States. On the good side, and it's a very small uh, silver lining, you know, the world got to see on display, because they've got a lot of Trump, 
in the past four years, essentially since he became a candidate. But they got to see the level of uh, professionalism and integrity of, you know, professional diplomats in the United States. And the truth is, is they really are the world's best. So, you know, (laughs) being able to see senior officers from the U.S. diplomatic corps testify with such integrity and attention and detail um, was really a great boon to U.S. public diplomacy. Because it shows that not only to the American people, but to the world, these are the people who are trying to bridge that U.S. relationship with you. As an example, and um, Tyson, you saw this, and like me, that we follow this very closely. There was this moment where Ambassador Maria Yovanovitch, she was testifying. And as she's testifying, the President of the United States is sending a tweet that is disparaging her, telling that everywhere she go, everything just ended up badly. And it actually got the, it gave the opportunity to Congressman Schiff to mention the tweet during the testimony and ask the ambassador, so what do you think about this? And of course, she's, she had to answer, this is very intimidating. And that was the objective, but she showed a very still, steely resolve like all the other members of the, the, the witnesses that were called for this first batch of inquiries. Now, Tyson, I have another question for you, and that is, how do you explain the russification, let's call it that way, I can't find a better word, for the uh, Republican Party in the United States? It goes from the President to members of Congress, to members of the Senate, even to members of some of the cabinets. Do you have an idea how this came about? Hmm. Well, it is, it's pretty complicated, and I would say that there's still a massive plurality of views within the Republican Party. And depending on how votes or voting behavior or political behavior uh, shakes out, that can manifest itself in different ways. I'm being very vague, but let me, let me speak a little more plain speak. Uh, the, Rush, the, the, the Republican Party has not been russified. Um, it is still a overwhelmingly Russo-skeptic party, and it's not because of its op- opposition to the Russian people. It's because of its opposition to kleptocratic oligarchs who are using a strategy of, you know, energy as a weapon or, uh, you know, aggression on its neighbors or breaking the rule of law or breaking international norms um, and and violently, essentially taking part in violent operations against its neighbors in Ukraine, Georgia, um, Syria, you name it. Um, there's, There's a hostility there within the Republican Party. And you can see that. I'll give you a great example. There was a, a, a sanctions piece of sanctions legislation passed by the Republican House and Senate overwhelmingly in 2017, which codified the sanctions put in place by the Obama administration against Russia because of Ukraine, because uh, there was worry that Trump would try to lift those sanctions. Now, Trump himself, this is where it gets a little more complicated. Trump himself has evinced himself, let's say, of two minds. On the one hand, there's his rhetoric, which is very fawning, very sycophantic to Russia, um, somewhat uh, erratic. You know, sometimes he will, like the summit last year where he met with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki and was very, you know, complimentary, seemed to kind of give away the store, was willing, willing to establish a cyber commission with the Russians, which would have opened the door to 
essentially allow Russia to uh, you know, put itself on the same level in the United States, considered extradition of a former U.S. ambassador to Russia, etc. And then, and I'm going to use a little bit of the, let's say, the Republican establishment line. There's the actions. They say, you know, we are the ones, the Republicans, who insisted on giving Ukraine lethal assistance uh, when the Obama administration wouldn't do it. We are the ones who have upped uh, you know, contributions to NATO. We are the ones who are are checking Russia in different in different areas. We're the ones who helped coordinate, um, you know, expulsions after the Scripple event in the UK in 2018. So it's very mixed, and that complexity within that heterodoxy within the Republican Party can cloud exactly what the position of, of the Republican Party is vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And I think that's, that's just, it, which is not the case in the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party used to be, I would say, latently kind of indifferent to Russia, always open to the idea of, you know, reset, uh, engagement, uh, incorporation into the international community. It was Obama, obviously, who uh, brought Russia into the WTO, for example, that kind of stuff, the reset, all that. Now the Democratic Party is pretty much uniformly hawkish vis-a-vis <laughs> -vis Russia. Um, but that, that said, that cloud continues to exist, and some of it is also plays into domestic politics in the United States. So one example is, you know, Trump always tries to create moral equivalencies. He said, well, even if Russia meddled in the U.S. elections, which is, you know, consensus position of the entire intelligence community. Ukraine uh, meddled in U.S. elections on behalf of the Democrats, which has been dismissed by uh, the head, the director of the FBI just this week, I think yesterday, um, but he is gaining traction and was, was shot down very, very forcefully by Fiona Hill in her testimony, where it said that Republicans who were giving life to this conspiracy theory were carrying water for Russians, for, for the Kremlin. But just this week again, we have Ted Cruz out there saying, you know, that we, there's undeniable evidence that the Ukrainians were supporting the Democrats. So what, what, what's happening in the, the domestic political context is a, an attempt to create equivalence to say, well, even if the Russians were meddling in our elections on behalf of the Republicans, the Ukrainians were doing it on behalf of the Democrats. And who's to say which is better? Um, it's very per pernicious. And as I said, it's been uh, very much uh, discredited by the Intelligence Committee, but it continues to exist. Indeed. And it's mind-boggling how you can have senators like Senator Kennedy from Louisiana or Senator Cruz from Texas keep repeating those falsehoods on, on American television, national television. It's, it's uh, quite amazing. Now, I have a question for you, which is a very hard question to answer. I understand that, and I don't want you to put, I don't want to put you on the spot, and if you, don't, if you don't want to answer, that's fine, but do you have any hypothesis why President Trump is so compromised with this situation, especially with Vladimir Putin. Do you have any idea what can be happening on the background that we don't know and it will help explain this behavior? 
let's say it would all be, I don't want to say baseless speculation, but there would be uh, some element of speculation. Uh, let me, let me just say what the two things, which I think are, are, there's a lot of empirical evidence for. One is the president's personal affinity for strongmen, a type of, you know, macho oligarchic nationalist who flouts rule of law and uh, personalizes leadership and essentially claims a kind of monarchical status in his country. They tend to be nationalists. They tend to be aggressive to their neighbors. They tend to be corrupt. Um, and Russia, Putin is one example. Erdogan is another. Duterte in the Philippines. Um, you know, Bolsonaro in exactly in in uh, Brazil. So there there is a, a cast of leader emerging that has emerged in the past ten years that I think that he admires and aspires to be. The only thing limiting his ability to kind of claim that mantle has been the strength of U.S. institutions. But of course, that's not guaranteed that they're going to hold. So that's one piece. And I think you can see that in his treatment of all these other leaders as well. Uh, Xi Jinping is another one. Um, so that's the personal piece. And then there's also probably, uh, and that's also something that's been written about and speculated on, the financial piece. So uh, the Trump organization has essentially turned from a construction organization to a licensing organization. And uh, it's no secret that the uh, organization and its family members have sought um, licensing deals uh, in the former Soviet Union, which they see as kind of an opportune, a choice market for their specific type of branding. Um, and I think that that continued it to play a role through the election and probably into 2017, maybe a little bit longer. Um, I don't know if that's going to continue once he leaves office, because I think there are going to be a lot of questions around his financial entanglements, conflicts of interest, um, money laundering, another another issue that could come up with, with ties to the Russians. So not only would the Trump organization seek licensing deals abroad in the post-Soviet Union and, and Russia in particular, but also who are the individuals buying um, apartments in Trump Tower, in Trump properties? Um, mm. Because housing money in real estate abroad in what are considered safe, um, you know, safe countries, safe spaces with stable currencies has long been a, a form of money laundering, a favored by, uh, you know, let's say unsavory individuals in countries like Russia. So there, there are a couple of different ways you could think about Trump's, let's say, very unique relationship with Russia. All right. This is the kind of knowledgeable information that we crave in this podcast. This has <laughs> been a fantastic conversation. Uh, thank you so much, Tyson. Tell how people can follow your work. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you follow me on Twitter at, at Tyson Barker. And uh, feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or a direct message on Twitter. Um, I'm always around for, for, for chat, chatting. 
As usual, all these links will be in the description of the podcast. And I will take you on on that, Tyson, because definitely I will have you back so that we can not only continue this conversation, but also talk about other things that you are also an expert. But for now, I'm going to thank you so much for coming to the podcast, Tyson. I hope to have you back soon. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I'm back and I would just like to remind you that now we are also on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, help us promote our podcast and with that more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.